Hi, friends. If you would, take your Bibles and open up to the book of Isaiah. We're focusing in on two verses of Isaiah, chapter 9, during these weeks leading up to Christmas, and we rightly call this season Advent. Advent focuses on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming, and then the certainty of his coming again. And we are eager for that coming. But I thought I would quote a masterful book as I begin this morning and the way it starts out. And here's what it says. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And so begins the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, a book that each of our kids have read and one that I enjoy too for its refreshing insistence that every part of the Bible is pointing us back to Jesus. Now, our Advent series is doing that. As we read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has been at times called the fifth gospel. It tells us about Jesus Christ in detail before Jesus ever came, some 800 years before his arrival. And I marvel when we get into these passages and I marvel the more I study in context what these names mean. This is the second week of the Promised One series for Advent, and we're focusing on these titles given to the coming king, this one about whom the Old Testament whispers and the one that the New Testament loudly proclaims. Today, we're focusing on the mighty God. Last week, it was the Wonderful Counselor, and we learned that our Lord has the power to speak into situations, counsel that the world cannot give, that they can't even begin to, to give to us, that Jesus uniquely and wonderfully leads us into the pathway of life and light. But this week, we're focusing on these verses again to look at his title, Mighty God, and if you will, read with me or look at the passage as I read, I should more accurately say, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. 
For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So pause for a moment as we bow our heads. Let's pray and let's ask God to reveal himself to us today as mighty God, as the scriptures have led us to believe. Lord, we do ask that of you. We're continuing in worship now as we pray and as we give our attention to the word. You have revealed yourself in everything from creation to more specifically and more precious to us, your word. Help us through your word to know you. You have said that you are the mighty God. Help us to see that to believe it and to be changed today. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going through three main points today. And in the first place, expecting the mighty God. In the second place, encountering the mighty God. And then finally, we're looking at life under or living under the mighty God. So let's get into the first point, expecting the mighty God. And we need to do something first. We need to deal with the terms as they come to us in the text. Those terms are mighty and God. I want to take the first one first, God. It's the Hebrew word El, which admittedly is used both of the one God, Yahweh, in Scripture, but also of the gods known to the pagan world. But in the Scriptures, most often this word God is combined with either an adjective or a descriptor that comes along with it or a compound noun that tells us something about El or God. And that's the case here. But know for certain that the terms, when they are put together like this, mighty God, are not talking about someone who is God-like. It's not talking about somebody who has powers or is a unique person among humans. When these terms are put together like this, wherever they occur, it is an identity of God himself. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But of particular interest to me when I studied this week is this word mighty. It is the Hebrew word gibor. And if you've ever studied Hebrew, that's an interesting word because it means something like warrior. To speak of our Lord as a warrior conjures images in our minds. Perhaps you've got an, a warrior in your mind right now who you are thinking about. I thought of several. And if you studied the Old Testament, you might have encountered reading the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, this category of guys that surrounded David called his mighty men. If you've ever studied them, I mean, these were interesting guys. So I went back and I looked up some of their stories. You know, there were 
these guys, and, and sometimes they said there were 30, sometimes 37, sometimes hundreds who would surround David when he was running from King Saul out in the wilderness. And then when he was king, these guys were like his premier elite force that would go out and fight on his behalf. So there was one guy, a Gibor, by the name of Josheb Bashabeth. Like, this is a guy you would not mess around with. He single-handedly killed 800 men in battle with one spear. That's amazing. You know, these are like epic stories where, like, if the Bible didn't say it, you would think, no, that's not true. That can't happen. No, it, it did happen because the Bible did say it. David himself was a gibor, a warrior, because he went into the battlefield and fought Goliath. You know that story. But did you know that Goliath had four brothers? Yeah, I mean, often we say he picked five stones. He must have had in, in mind all five of the giants to kill them all. But the other four didn't get killed until later on, David's mighty men went out in force and one by one killed each of the giants, starting with Goliath's brother, Lami. It's very interesting. So a mighty man is a warrior who... We might think of now in, in our culture and day the heroes that are made popular in many movies and shows on TV, right? Like whether it's an Avenger or a Hulk or someone like that, you've got you know, cultural images of mightiness and power. What usually happens, the mighty person comes in and they just clean house. They, just, they take care of business. They get rid of the bad guys and usually leave a big mess behind. What, though, do we find when we start to consider a mighty God? Isaiah uses this expression, and here's what we have to find out. This title is not just a title for the coming king, this infant son who would be given. This is a title that has been used of God himself throughout the Old Testament, in one chapter later, Isaiah, in Isaiah 10, verses 20 and 21, will tell Judah, in that day, coming, for, coming ahead, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, there's no question who that is. That's Yahweh. But he is also called the mighty God. Also of note are other times. Would, and I just want to show you some scriptures that will get you into the mindset of the person in Israel who, when they would hear these words, mighty God, describing this coming king, what kind of thoughts would have run through their mind? Well, there's Psalm 24, 8. In the worship of Israel, they would cry out, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Or in the prophet Jeremiah, in two different places. First in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 11. Jeremiah said, but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. There's our same word, gibor, mighty. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. 
Or later on in Jeremiah chapter 32, as Jeremiah reveals the character of God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, he says, you show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of angel armies, the eternal God. You are the mighty God. And this is harking back to when Moses was on the mountain and it was in the giving of the law that God took Moses and hid him in a mountain. And when Moses asked, may I see you, God? God said, I will reveal myself to you, but I will only show you my backside. Because if you saw me full on, you would die. And so as Moses hid in the, in the rock, God passed by. And what was revealed is what Jeremiah is reiterating. You show steadfast love to thousands. The Lord, the Lord, who shows steadfast love to thousands, but repays the guilt of fathers to their children after them, is the great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts. Great in counsel, that takes back into consideration what we learned last week, the wonderful counselor, and mighty, there's that word again, the gibor, gibor indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. What do we learn from these texts? Well, here's what I see as I read even these few texts about Israel. We are a vulnerable people. We are a vulnerable people. Our hearts quake when we consider threats around us. And Israel, in its day, in Isaiah's day, were surrounded by nations that were aligned against them. Judah was isolated like an island in the middle of enemies that had already occupied territory around it. And it's very much like today. As I mentioned last week, if you look at Israel on the map but you look at the nations that are around it, and then you read the news headlines even now, and you can see that nations are aligned against Israel and have for generations, going back even farther than the day of Isaiah. And this constant threat is always on us, and we're always looking for ways out of trouble. But the trouble helps us to encounter God. And who is the God that they hoped in? The mighty God that they hoped in and ingrained in their minds would be images of the Lord strong and mighty, of the Lord a dread warrior who would come to wipe out Israel's oppressors. They would be thinking of the Lord of hosts, mighty indeed, who would impartially pay back to each person according to what he or she had done. They were expecting that their Messiah would be mighty like David, that he would be strong and courageous like Joshua, that he would exercise judgment with the justice and wisdom of Solomon. Yet the title Mighty God remained wrapped in a mystery. These words combined don't refer merely to a godlike hero with someone like that Marvel superhero strength but someone who is a child. 
who is born a human and is yet called a mighty or the mighty God. And it's from this point, encountering the mighty God in the Old Testament, that we cross the bridge into the New Testament to encounter this mighty God. We expect him, and now we encounter him. By the time you get to the New Testament, the threats of Assyria and Babylon have been put down. And this is the thing with human threats. They come and they go. God allows some to be lifted up and exalted, and then they get put down. But by this point in the New Testament, you and I know that the powerful Roman Empire now is bearing down on the people in Israel. When you consider that the, the whole known world in the time of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Joseph was under the rule and authority of Caesar, a man who proclaimed himself to be the son of God, it seemed better than ever a time for the promised son in Isaiah 9-6 to come and to deliver the people. But as we see in the stories of Mary, Joseph, or even Elizabeth and Zechariah in the books of Luke and Matthew, and the supporting casts of shepherds and magi, we see that the power of God does not blaze into the central halls of authority. We see that the power and the might of God begins on a small scale, not with overwhelming force, but with the vulnerability of a baby. Now, it's crucial that the story begins this way. And it's important to note that the mighty God that they were to expect and that we should still expect to work today is not a God who overwhelms us with force, but a God who comes and subdues us in very seemingly insignificant ways to bring about amazingly powerful ends. Mary understood this, as in Luke chapter 1, she heard what was going to happen, and she went to her cousin Elizabeth to visit her. And Elizabeth reported that John the Baptist leapt in her womb at the arrival of Mary and Jesus in her womb. And they began to praise God. And Mary, who I am sure was struggling, feeling alone, and just maybe tempted by doubt of the word that the angel from Yahweh had revealed to her, then hearing Elizabeth's report and receiving that encouraging environment, Mary herself praised God in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. This is how it starts. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary didn't understand everything that was happening to her, but I do want you to know, Mary did know that her baby boy would be God in the flesh. Whatever that song tells you, she did. Now, did she know that she would be kissing the face of God? I think probably so. 
because her heart rejoices in what God is doing. And she realizes that, that although she is humble, although she has nothing, although she has been called out of basically nowheresville in order to be the mother of the coming Messiah, her heart rejoices and leaps at how God works. I won't read later on in Luke chapter 1, but if you would read Mary's song in her song of praise, she begins to think about how God works through history, and she says that he confounds the proud. He doesn't allow those who are arrogant and position themselves in the halls of authority to continue long if they will not humble themselves under his mighty hand. I read again this week the story in Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar and how in arrogance he walked around on his rooftop and looked at everything that he had made in Babylon, the very nation that in Isaiah's day had taken into captivity the northern nation of Israel. And as Nebuchadnezzar looked around, he said, look at everything that my hand has done. Look at all that I've accomplished. Is this not by my great power and authority? And the next day, he was cursed and became a cow for seven years. Until ultimately, at the end of that time, he lifted his eyes again to the heavens and said, God is in the heavens and he rules over all and none can stop his hand or say to him, what are you doing? He alone is the sovereign ruler. But how does this sovereign ruler enter the world? He enters the world through the vulnerability of a poor woman's womb. The uncreated one becomes human. This is the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of how God works, where we would expect God to arrive in power and to set things right. God arrives in weakness to prove a different point. He came with a different set of agendas. And we read a summary of this in Philippians chapter 2, which the Koenigs read for us this morning. Philippians 2, let's turn there in our Bibles to read what this description, this teaching, this analysis of Jesus's incarnation and how we're to think about it now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, here are some things that we can learn from these few verses. First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Now, I hope that already that point has been proved in an Old Testament way. When it says that unto us a son is given, to us a child is born, and then it says his name will be Mighty God, in some mysterious way, this human baby is God. But Paul reveals to us by the Holy Spirit that Jesus, he says, was in the form of God. Now, to us, you know, when we use that word form, you know, in my mind, I think about some form that I have to fill out in order to take part in an activity, to basically uh, sign a non-disclosure, perhaps. 
or a form might be if I'm signing up for something. You know, we think of forms as quite boring, quite frankly. But in this case, when Paul mentions form, he's not talking about something other than the real thing. He's talking about the thing itself. That's the use of form when he uses it here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He's basically saying, if you want to see God, and you want to know God, he came in the flesh and lived on earth. His name is Jesus. Now, this is the amazing thing because it didn't say that this was the beginning of Jesus' life. A little later on, it says that he was born in the likeness of men. But before he was born in the likeness of men, he was already existing in the form of God. Jesus is known as the eternal Son of God. He did not begin his life in the manger in Bethlehem. His life is from ancient time, before there was time. And he is to be worshipped with all of the worship that we afford in our minds the idea of God. Like in the Old Testament, the word God was accompanied by adjectives or nouns to help the people of God know him and worship him. When we think of God, we should think of Jesus, the same as we think of Father, the same as we think of Spirit. These three are one. But we also read that in this passage, Jesus takes steps of humility down a descending road that ultimately leads to his death. Jesus humbled himself. Look at these steps downward. He went from glorious power to humble servanthood. He went from divine rights to human struggles. He went from life to death, even the death of the cross. And this ultimately is true might. Like if you want a definition of what real power is, you look at this text and you see and you meditate in Philippians 2 for as long as it takes to see Jesus for who he really is and to understand true power for what it really is. Jesus did not come with the power of a king to take over the whole world. Someday he will. And by the time we end this passage or this text and this sermon today, my last passage will be that passage that points that very fact out. He is coming back and he will rule and he will subdue all enemies under his feet. But power begins this way. It begins by service to other people. And ultimately, the power that Jesus uses accomplishes the greatest good and the greatest miracle that any of us have ever experienced. It's the miracle of ourselves dying to our pride, dying to our self-mastery and rule, and to be submitted to the rule of God. This could not happen without the path that Jesus took. Because as much as we would like to see, like the people of Israel did in their own time, Jesus to come down and to sweep away all evil powers, to take out all of our enemies, where would that leave the majority of the world? It would leave them with no more problems 
but hearts that were still in rebellion against God. Hearts that needed to be changed. And if Jesus did not come first to humble himself to the point of death, then he would not have defeated the ultimate enemies that you and I have. Enemies of sin and of death and of hell. The power that the people of God were looking for was power to overthrow enemies. But the power that God revealed, the might of the mighty God, was to subdue the pride of the human heart and to save sinners from their sin. And from that, like the mustard seed of the kingdom, to see that kingdom grow to be the biggest thing the world has seen. God's people receive that power God's people are changed by that power. And Jesus continues his rule and reign through human hearts until one day he will come back and sit on his throne on this earth and rule everyone. Each year my family and I listen to the Advent album Behold the Lamb of God by Andrew Peterson. Have any of you ever listened to that album? Man, like one person. God, man, if you have Spotify or Apple Music, when we're done, listen to that on the way home. Make that a part, maybe, of your Advent season. It's so good because the beginning of the songs start with Moses and the people of God just entering the promised land and trying to figure out what, are, what kind of people are we going to be now? Who's going to rule over us? And they ask, you know, are we going to have a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist? This is the image that the songs lead us to consider. And the people of God were asking these questions. But by the time they get to Isaiah's time period, David is dead, Solomon is dead, and the kingdom is divided. And so they, they turn and they say, speak Isaiah. And the song continues, prophet of Judah. Can you tell of the one this king who's going to come, will he be a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength, the hearts of the people are his? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? And Isaiah said, he'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised. A man of such sorrows, we covered our eyes. He'll take up our sickness and carry our tears, and for his people, he will be pierced. He will be crushed for our evil, our punishment feel, and by his wounds, we will be healed. This is the power of God. This is the change that must take place in your heart, in my heart, before we would ever receive a rule of a universal king. We must first have him rule our hearts. Our mighty God has come, and he has conquered all the enemies that are in front of you today, but have you yielded to him? Has his might subdued you and your stubborn heart? Does it continue to do that work today? I want to conclude by talking about two aspects of life under the mighty God. Right now, 
we're in the 21st century, and Jesus, who came in the first century, in all of these years, Anno Domini, named after our Lord, he has yet to come again. So what does life right now look like under this mighty God? I think one takeaway for you today and for me is that we can own our weakness under his might. We can own our weakness. Even as we continue to have threats now and threats in the future. So I really thought of this. If you consider, consider your status as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you are truly the most free person in the entire world. Truly. You are no longer a slave to your rights. I want to explain that in a minute. You no longer need to either protect yourself or promote yourself. These are the two errors that we fall into so often, right? On the one hand, you want to protect yourself from people really knowing you or knowing your failures. It seems like we live in order to make it hard for other people to know the real us. And likewise, we seek to promote ourselves. We, we know our worth, and we don't want anybody to trample on that or to tell us that we're not important. And any chance that we get if we're seeking to promote ourselves is to tell people just how our rights are being trampled. But as I said a moment ago, you as a Christian are no longer a slave to your rights, either the rights that you feel of, that might expose you or the rights that you want to promote and say how good you are. Those are the two things we're always trying to do apart from the grace of Jesus. But under the mighty God who humbled himself for us, and we are told in the scripture whose mind we now have, we have the power to live in such a way where we don't insist on our rights, but we love other people and we serve them. I experienced a bit of that and the humbling that it took to get me from a point this week where I was angry toward another because they were stubborn and wouldn't say sorry. And I knew that I had been hurt and offended and I felt that I had the right to maintain my rights. And if that person would be stubborn, I would not be the one to yield. I wouldn't be the one to bend. I can remember driving with my family in the van later and my wife put a song on Spotify that puts Philippians 2, 5 to 11, our text, to music. It's just the words of scripture. And man, I, I, I don't think she was targeting me, but I do think we were learning that as a family, but I also think I needed it at that moment because what I heard in this text, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, it's not just something that gives us a point theologically to believe or to understand. It's something that should change the way that we live. The words of the scripture convicted me, and it was like a convicting life was coming back into me, breaking down my pride in its various dimensions and calling on me to yield. And that was the main point. I mean, 
Who in a conflict is going to yield first? Who is going to bend and give up their rights? Who, for the sake of the other, will not compromise truth but love? Seek to forgive. Seek to be right with them. Jesus calls us to that kind of life, and he gives that kind of power. You know, I read a story this morning from the Bible, the story of when the prophet Elisha died. The, the prophet Elisha is like a prototypical gibor in the form of a prophet in 2 Kings, right? The warrior. He was a guy who, you know, saw angel armies come down and take out the armies that came against the people of God. He brought dead people back to life. You know, an amazing guy. But then in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 20, it says, Elisha died. He's dead. They put him in the grave. And then it says, you know, there were these raiders that would come and attack the people of Israel. And uh, one time, these guys were carrying this dead body. And uh, these raiders came, and they got freaked out. So quickly, they just dumped this dead body into the grave of Elisha and ran away. And the dead guy touched the bones of Elisha and came back to life. This is Weird stories like that in the Old Testament. And what does it teach us? All right, Elisha was dead and gone. There, were, there was no power in his dead bones. But this is how the power of Jesus works. The might of Jesus works in such a way that we are like those dead bones. And his power can change us to make us alive. His power can produce life through us Consider yourself this morning as just a, a, a pile of bones. If that's all you've got, if that's all you feel, God can work through that. God can change you. God can make you new. God can work through you in the lives of other people. You can change because Jesus is the power at work in you. You know what, someday Jesus is coming back, and as the end of Philippians 2 says, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and following, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is a non-negotiable. Everybody, everybody here this morning will someday bow before Jesus. Everybody that you see on your drive home, if you go to a restaurant, everybody that sits around you, all those people too, the people in your schools or workplaces, the people that you see on TV, I hope you're getting the point. Every person in the entire world, living and dead, will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And the question becomes, will you do so in this life now? Because certainly you will do so in the life to come. The call goes out to any who are not followers of Jesus today to know that he did come as a baby, but he grew to be a man who in giving up his life on the cross, gave up his life in order to rise from the dead 
and to conquer sin, death, and hell so that all who would turn to him in faith and believe on him for eternal life would be saved. But if you will not, if you will continue in the life of self-rule and self-mastery, then you will bow before Jesus someday. And certainly we have assurance that he will return in power. And as I read this passage from Revelation, it will be our clothes. And I want you to think about this and think about this day. Revelation 19, verses 11 and 16, when our Lord comes in power. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We worship you, Jesus. How grateful we are that you came first not to reign and rule like this. Oh, Lord, thank you that you came to subdue human hearts to yourself. Thank you that you came to die for the sins of mankind. And thank you that even now, by your Spirit, you are working in hearts. And I pray that you would work in hearts today. Help people who may feel as dead as Elisha's bones to know that the power at work is not in us, but it is only through you. Work in power in us today to revive us. And work in power to bring someone here who may not be saved from death to life. We love you. Help us to see you rightly. And Lord, we look to you to behold your coming and are eager to be with you. Continue, Lord, help us in Jesus' name and for our, our, your sake and for our good. Amen.